This, this morning we're looking at Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, as it's known in Latin, which comes from the, the first word of his song, uh, which is blessed, right? And it's, uh, it's Zechariah's hymn of praise to God, and um, it's also kind of a blessing for his son. It's a, a prophecy um, occasioned by the, the circumcision and the naming of his son, John, who um, would be John the Baptist. And the song that we're looking at this morning, um, it highlights the faithful and merciful character of God and the, uh, the nature of the Messiah as our king, as the one who um, delivers us from, from all of our troubles, the one who delivers us from our greatest enemies. So let's pray, and then we'll read the passage. Father, we want for your word to have its way in us. We've come here um, this morning to uh, hear from you and to meet you. And so we pray that you would meet us through your word and uh, by your spirit. Help us to uh, humbly submit to what you have to say to us and help us to rejoice in your gospel together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Earlier in uh, chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, we first see Zechariah serving in the temple. And we haven't read this in our series yet on um, the songs of Christmas this Advent, but but maybe you remember the story. Uh, Zechariah was an elderly priest um, from the tribe of Levi who lived in a small town in the hill country of Judea, Judah, uh, with his old barren wife, Elizabeth. Right? And um, 
Usually just once in a priest's lifetime, he was called to enter the holy place in the temple. So the, the central part of the temple um, where only the high priest could go once a year was called the holy of holies or the holiest place. And, but right outside of that, there's this holy place that um, you know, a Levite man would be able to go once in his lifetime and he would burn incense, uh, symbolic of the prayers being offered up of all the people. And here, toward the end of his life, Zechariah's number came up. Um, And he was in the temple burning incense when the angel Gabriel appeared to him. The text says that Zechariah was troubled and afraid at the sight of the angel, which is a pretty standard experience of those in the Bible who see angels. This is what Gabriel said to him uh, in verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Zechariah's son, John, would be the forerunner to the Messiah, right? preparing people, making them ready to receive Jesus as their Savior, to receive him as their Lord. And there was only one problem in Zechariah's mind. You know, the the angel said, your prayer has been answered. Uh, You'll have a son well, whatever prayer it was of his that was being heard and answered, uh, he hasn't prayed in like 30 years because um, he's old. He's an old man, and his wife, Elizabeth, is old too. And when she was of childbearing age, they couldn't have any kids. So Gabriel's message seems doubly impossible now. So even, the, even though there's an angel from God standing right in front of him, talking to him. He says, I find this a little hard to believe. Could you maybe you give me a sign? Um, uh, like what better sign than an angel from God standing in front of him, talking to him, right? But <clears throat> apparently, Zechariah was having difficulty trusting God's word. So the angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So, You want a sign? How about God shuts your mouth so he can't stay, say stupid things anymore? Um, how's that for a sign? Uh, well, Zechariah went home, mute, and... Um, one of the words there for you'll be silent and unable to speak could also mean that, um, that he was struck deaf, which is kind of implied by the fact that uh, the people in our passage this morning are making signs to him to try to get him to understand it, ask him what to name the baby. But uh, he goes home mute and probably deaf, and his elderly, barren wife got pregnant. Right? It's a fulfillment of the things that were spoken to him. But uh, Zechariah remained mute, even though the miracle had taken place. 
And six months later, they received a visit from a relative, Mary. Uh, It was a young virgin who had also conceived miraculously. And Mary and Elizabeth rejoiced together over what God had done for them. And Mary stayed with them about three months. And, uh, you know, the angel had said that John would prophesy uh, he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb, right? Um, And he leaped for joy at the presence of, of Jesus inside the womb of his mother, Mary. And I would imagine that during their months together, they would have recited their Gabriel stories uh, over and over again, right? And then Mary left. Uh, Apparently, just before Elizabeth gave birth to a son, and it was a son, right? The angel's word was fulfilled again. And the neighbors and relatives all gathered around to celebrate and congratulate Elizabeth. The angel's word was fulfilled again. And still Zechariah remained mute. Then, on the eighth day, the neighbors and relatives all gathered, um, which is uh, kind of to show that the sacraments like circumcision and baptism are community events, right? Uh, and, and they basically started referring to the baby as junior, right? Which uh, is pretty normal for that culture. What wasn't normal for that culture was to wait until the day of circumcision to name the baby. Uh, interestingly, instead of being named at his birth, like usual, it was pretty standard for their, uh, their culture. Their son was being named at his circumcision. And personally, I don't think that that's just uh, an incidental detail of the text. I think it has some significance, but more on that in a few minutes. The standard operating procedure in that culture <clears throat> was that the firstborn son is named either after grandpa or after dad. Right? Um, and so everybody expected that. But Elizabeth said pretty emphatically, no, uh, he should be called John. And with that, she was creating a a, um, bit of friction with a couple of their social customs. First was the name thing. Here, Zechariah had waited all these years for a son to carry his name. Don't deprive the old man of that. right? Um, Second was kind of the chauvinistic culture thing. Uh, You're just a woman, and so we're going to ask the man of the house what he wants to name the kid. So they made signs to Zechariah. And they asked the father what the boy's name should be. Zechariah, don't you want this boy to carry your family name, to carry your legacy? To their surprise, Zechariah wrote down, John is his name. And then, and only then, was Zechariah's speech restored to him. Not at his son's conception, not at his... Uh, son's first prophetic instance of leaping in Elizabeth's womb, not at his son's birth, not at the community's rejoicing at his son's birth, even though these were all fulfillments of Gabriel's words. No, his speech was restored at his son's circumcision and naming. When uh, Zechariah finally demonstrated faith, in God by his obedience in naming his son what the angel told him to name him. Why was it only then that his speech was restored? Um, This is where we get back to the strangeness, I think, of naming John at the circumcision, at the time of his circumcision rather than the time of his birth. It seems like these things were all coming together, right? Um, Kind of like an alignment of the planets or something in order to call attention to the significance of the names. The significance of the names in this story and the significance of the covenant. 
of which uh, circumcision was a sign. So when Zechariah sings his hymn of praise to God, inspired by the Holy Spirit who filled him to prophesy, his song focuses on the covenant of grace that um, God has made with his people. Maybe you're familiar with the the term uh, chiasm. It's a structure that sometimes appears in Hebrew poetry. Um, uh, But basically there's there's a chiasm taking place in this text, and at the center, at the, the key part of it, is this concept of God's covenant, God's promise, God's oath that he made to his people. And that's what Zechariah is highlighting in his song. Zechariah says that, um, that God's salvation had now come, verse 72, in order to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And the very names of Zechariah and his, and his family point to this truth that we just read there. In, in Hebrew, Zechariah means God remembers. And Elizabeth means God's promise or God's oath. And John means God is merciful. So the miraculous birth of their son was a pointer to the fact that God was remembering his promise to be merciful. And the whole purpose of their son's life would be to point to the fact that God was remembering his promise to be merciful. So um, what was God's promise that he was now remembering or um, taking steps to fulfill? Well, it started with his promise to Abraham, which we read, um, we haven't read, we, we read it, we find it in several Uh, installments in the book of Genesis, right? Chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22. And this is how it goes. Abraham was in his 80s, right? And like Zechariah, he was too old to realistically expect children, even though that was what God had promised him. Uh, But God told him that through his line, through his offspring, his descendants, God was going to bless the world, that Abraham was going to be a father of a multitude of nations, And God gave him the sign of circumcision to mark his son as an expression of Abraham's faith. As an expression of Abraham's faith. He's going to mark his son with the sign of circumcision. And that that sign points to the fact that God is going to bless his children. God is going to make good on his promises. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 and 18, we read this. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring, plural, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So God had promised Abraham that his descendants would possess the land that at that time belonged to their enemies. Right? And he promised that it would come through one of Abraham's offspring in particular, that deliverance. Right? And that is the aspect of the covenant that Zechariah is highlighting in this song. Verse 71, he says, that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us. And then 73, to grant us that, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Now, 
That had happened once already. Long ago, right? In a magnificent display of God's mercy and his power to save his people, the great nation Israel, millions of people kept in slavery in Egypt, uh, the numerous offspring of Abraham had been delivered out of Egypt from their enemies by one of Abraham's descendants, Moses. Moses had led the people of God free from captivity. And during Zechariah's time, that's sure what the people wanted again, wasn't it? God had delivered them from oppressors and enemies before, like Egypt, like Assyria, like Babylon. So they were hoping for the same kind of deliverance from their current enemies, from Roman occupation, Roman oppression, slavery. They were hoping for a mighty king, a mighty leader like Moses or like David, to rise up from among them, to conquer their foes, and to bring a lasting peace, a lasting political peace. And that almost sounds like what Zechariah is announcing in his song. Uh, Verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So what does that mean, a horn of salvation? Well, what kind of animals have horns? And what are horns used for? Uh, It's the strong kinds of animals, like bulls and rams. And it's the males, it's the stronger ones of the species, right? And if you're ever around animals with horns like that, you know to watch out because those things can hurt you and they can kill you. So the horn was a symbol of strength in battle. And Zechariah was announcing that the promised son of David, the promised king, the promised Messiah, mighty in battle to fight the enemies of God's people, had arrived to redeem, to deliver his people. Finally, freedom from Roman oppressors, right? except Zechariah was also announcing the birth of his own son. He was announcing the birth of John, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the Lord. He would prepare God's people to receive their Messiah. He would set the people straight. He would set straight their expectations about this deliverer. Philip Ryken says this, By and large, the people of John's day were looking for the wrong kind of salvation. They were thinking primarily in political terms. They wanted a better economy with more personal freedom. But that was not the kind of salvation God had in mind. So before the Savior even came, someone else had to get people ready. And so Zechariah looked down at his baby boy, probably screaming from his circumcision. And he said, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, the Messiah, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The goal of God's ancient covenant was to set his people free from their true enemies so that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, the text says. The commentator uh, Geldenheis says this, 
something far more glorious than political liberation is meant. The wholehearted service of the Lord in complete freedom from all bonds of sin, guilt, punishment, curse, Satan, and destruction. Do you realize that these are your true enemies? Can you imagine complete freedom from these enemies? Can you imagine wholeheartedly living for God's glory, no longer plagued by warring affections, by competing desires within you? Can you imagine no longer being enslaved to your own selfishness? Is that the kind of salvation that you need? (laughs) Give it a second there. (laughs) Is this the kind of salvation that you need? To be delivered from that kind of enemy, not some external circumstances in your life, but what's going on inside of you. To be delivered from your own selfishness, to be delivered from yourself. I think we're usually wrong about the kind of salvation that we need. We're in the dark when it comes to understanding our real enemies. What we really need deliverance from is things like this. Um, Our propensity to find ultimate satisfaction in an illustrious career. Uh, or to find deep happiness in more stuff or better food and drink. Or to earn respect by being culturally savvy and up on the latest art and films and music. Uh, To hope for security in a good government or a healthy economy. To make a future for ourselves, for our names, by creating perfect children. To escape pain by hitting the bottle. um, To get power or pleasure by womanizing or pornography. To get true love by desperately keeping our spouse's attention fixed on us. To find a thrill in risking our livelihood, uh, lying to our spouse and heading down to the casino. Those are the kind of things we need deliverance from. Just ask the rich and the famous and the beautiful and the drug addicts. None of these things could ever truly satisfy us. But they sure can enslave us. Have you ever found yourself in the thick of some sin, uh, realizing, being fully aware of the fact that what you're doing is wrong, but totally incapable of stopping yourself? The other day I got into an argument with my wife over something silly, which I can bring up because she's not here this morning. Um, And it's becoming more and more clear to me that anger has a grip on me, a pretty strong grip, right? I want to control the outcome of everything in my life. I want the furniture arranged in such a way. I want people to know I'm right and submit to my judgment. And when someone resists my will, I can explode. And as I was yelling at my wife... I realized, man, this is messed up. But I couldn't stop yelling at my wife. I had to be right. Our real oppression comes from our own sin. Our true slavery is in giving ourselves to dead idols to get life. Our desires and affections are bound in chains to sin, and they're steadily dragging us on the way to our death apart from God. And uh, we're sitting in the darkness of a prison of our own creation. 
And because God is who he is, there is good news, surprisingly, for people like us. Right? Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's because of the tender mercy of our God. Literally, it's the bowels of mercy, the inward parts. It's the seat of our affections. And that means that deep within his gut, God is disposed to be merciful to sinners. God is the kind of God who makes promises to bad people to deliver them from their own sin. God is absolutely faithful to keep those promises. God has already remembered his promises of mercy and acted on them by visiting and redeeming his people in the person of his son. God the Son visited humanity by becoming a human, Jesus becoming like us in every way except for our sin. And he redeemed us. He bought our freedom from sin and death and the curse and God's wrath by the payment of his own life, his own blood given up on the cross. Jesus has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel once and for all, crushing our true enemies by letting himself be crushed. For us. In his death, he suffered the punishment for our rebellion. Our sin was erased. Our death was killed. By the gift of his spirit, he grants us new hearts, new desires to serve God in holiness and righteousness all our days. Jesus is the true king with the the real power to deliver his people, the one who is restoring perfect peace and wholeness in his kingdom? Do you think you need this kind of deliverer, this kind of savior, or do you think you can pretty much manage on your own without him? Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Throughout the Gospels, who was it that received Jesus warmly, saying, he is what I need? It was the thieves and the prostitutes and the lepers and the lunatics and the paralytics, people whose lives were ruined by demons they couldn't fight off. It was the broken people who were keenly aware of their own sins and weaknesses And uh, unfortunately, people like that usually feel out of place in church. They feel like they've blown it. They've screwed up their lives too much to fit in. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is for exactly those people. People who despair of themselves, of their own abilities. People who hate what they've done, who desperately need God's mercy toward them in Jesus, and who are otherwise without hope in the dark. Right? You need to believe that. And you need to tell your friends, your broken friends, about it too. Let me close with um, a few verses from a hymn Charles Wesley wrote 
and can it be that I should gain? It's probably familiar to some of you. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Blessed be the Lord God who has visited and redeemed his people in remembrance of his promise to be merciful to us. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we, um, we give ourselves to many gods. Uh, these are dead idols. Whether they're good things or bad things, they enslave us and they make promises that they can never keep. And we've got this uh, gaping black hole within ourselves that um, is in desperate need of more than anything can provide except for you. You alone can fill our hearts. You alone can burst the chains of our oppression, our sin, the death that we deserve, the futility of our lives apart from your grace. And so we we throw ourselves on your mercy this morning, and we ask that you would truly deliver us, that you would show yourself to be stronger than all of our true enemies, that you would lift up our hearts by faith, that you would give our minds, understanding of your gospel in a way that uh, truly changes us to be more like our Lord and Savior Jesus. We pray that you would uh, renew our hope for the fulfillment of every single one of your promises because you are the God who faithfully remembers promises to be merciful to us. Uh, We thank you that you are that God and that you have called us to be your children. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.